This is the Marketing Podcast Network. You may know you're listening to this show along the Marketing Podcast Network, but did you know there are other great shows on MPN to help your business? Christy Heiler hosts a fantastic podcast called Own It. Christy, Tell us more about the show. Own It is all about celebrating women and non-binary advertising agency owners. We talk about buying out of the Boys Club of Advertising because less than 1% of ad agencies are owned by women. And where can people subscribe? You can find the podcast at untilyouownit.com. We're also on the Marketing Podcast Network at marketingpodcast.net. And of course, you can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. You heard her. Go subscribe. Stories influence, teach, and inspire us. But what about the storytellers who create them? Uncorking a Story profiles storytellers to uncover how their background and life experiences influence the stories they create. We learn what motivates them, their path to success, and what fuels them to keep creating. It all starts by asking one simple question. Where does your story begin? Welcome to Uncorking a Story. Now here's your host, Mike Carlin. Well, hello and welcome to Uncorking a Story. I'm your host, Mike Carlin, and today I'm excited to introduce you to Andrew Ridker. Andrew's debut novel, The Altruist, was a New York Times editor's choice, a Paris Review staff pick, and a People Book of the Week. He's the editor of Privacy Policy, the anthology of surveillance poetics, and his writing has appeared in The New York Times, Esquire, Le Monde, and book form, among other publications. He's a graduate of the Iowa Writers' Workshop and joins me today to talk about his latest novel, Hope, an intimate portrait of the undoing of a seemingly perfect family in an era of waning American optimism. And that's a mouthful, but here today to talk about that and so much more is Andrew. Andrew, welcome to Uncorking a Story. Thank you so much for having me. Andrew, where does your story as an author begin? I would have to say that my story begins in... Uh, my hometown of Brookline, Massachusetts, which is uh, also the setting for this novel, Hope. Um, there are so many, you know, we all grow up in a place and we think for a long time it's the default place and everyone must grow up just just like we do. Um, and then, of course, you get older, you move away, you start living other places and you start to realize how how quirky or unusual your life experience or your hometown was. So I think growing up in Brookline, I was like, oh, I'm just a suburban kid. It's, you know, like some sort of John Hughes movie, like sort of generic suburban experience. And then as you get older, I started realizing this is a weird place. It's a, it's a liberal bubble. It's a uh, sort of financial or, or class bubble. It's near a lot of other areas in Boston that uh, are very different, but through a particular set of laws and policies it became the way it is um and that all the sort of ethos i would call it like the brookline massachusetts ethos which is to say you know voting blue uh caring about social justice uh, but also having a kind of blind spot where your own privileges is really informed not just this book which is set in brookline but but all my all my work and probably all the work i will go on to do so much of what i write is about that intersection between altruism and privilege, the impulse to do good, and the the difficulties uh, or blind spots that we have when we try to do good, um, morality and money. Uh, so I really feel like it all, for better or worse, I owe it all to this uh, this town I grew up in, which is not not quite as dull as I, I thought when I was a kid. 
Yeah, I think is is Conan O'Brien from Brookline. I I want to yes. say he's one of your famous, uh, you know, former residents. We went to the same high school, not at the same time, obviously, but I remember they used to wheel out, you know, the old uh, uh, TV and VHS player on the sort of dolly, um, and show us Conan's um, commencement speech when he came back and gave one at Brookline High School. So he's very much, uh, you know, everyone at Brookline High knows, you know, this is where this is where Conan. Yeah. Well, shout out to, to Team Coco. Yeah. <laughs> um, how long did you stay in Brookline for? When did you when did you leave? I basically lived there from, you know, the age of, you know, two to 18, went off to St. Louis for college, moved to New York, uh, Iowa for grad school, back to New York. But then while I was writing this book, uh, it was COVID and and everyone was, you know, fleeing the city and we didn't know what was going on. So I found myself back in Brookline in my childhood home for the first time in like 10 years, but under very different circumstances. And that in some ways fueled the writing of the book, this feeling of like back in 2013, I was living in this house and things felt very different. And now it's 2020 and it's COVID and it's Trump and it's all these things. And I'm in the same house in the same town but under very different circumstances. So how did we get here? And that was ended up being a big sort of fuel for the novel was just being like, I'm back, but everything feels very different. You know? I mean, had COVID not happened and had you not had to, you know, leave New York, I mean, I imagine this might've been a very different book. I think so. I mean, I don't remember exactly where I was in the process when COVID hit, but I do know that a, a lot of it was written under COVID. And I think, you know, it was my wife, my sister and I all sharing this house together. And every day around lunch or after lunch, my wife and I would take a walk around the suburbs because, you know, in her, in her neighborhood in Brooklyn, you know, there's a, there's trash on the street and there's a dog barking and there's a, a guy shouting at a bird. And in Brookline, uh, it's so idyllic and these houses are beautiful and it was summer and the sun's coming through the the leaves and speckling the you know sidewalk and i think those walks i mean it was just so much thinking about like god i, can't, I grew up here but i'm not here anymore but i'm here again i think that really did inform the book for, with a real sense of place that i would have had to imagine had i been in brooklyn but i was really sort of experiencing minute to minute uh in brookline yeah, I, it's it's interesting. Just the, the the just the names of those two, you know, towns, Brooklyn, Brookline, very similar yet very different experiences. But there's a real there's a real Brookline to Brooklyn uh, pipeline. We sort of joke kids from kids from my high school where, like, if you grew up in Brooklyn, Massachusetts, there's a good chance you're going to like wind up in Brooklyn, New York, at some point because it's the sort of like, you know, young arty place to be and our suburb though it was a suburb was very much a sort of you know open-minded liberal arty place where i think the sort of values you get raised in there translate very well to brooklyn new york uh with of course that big splash of reality uh with you know the crazy stuff you see every day right yeah. the guy shouting at birds it's uh right. you know it's classic well what can you share with us about uh, the novel hope so Hope is about uh, a family that basically seems from all, you know, outside perspectives to, to be perfect, to kind of have it all together. 
good jobs, good education, good house in a good neighborhood. And in a lot of ways, they really embody the, the sort of uh, optimism that was very prevalent in towns like Brookline under Obama. There's a real sense of not just that the country's heading in a good direction, uh, but that we're all benefiting from this meritocratic, happy system. And we're all just incrementally, the country's getting better. Um, and over the course of one very disastrous year, the members of this family start making uh, some bad decisions, one that leads to another, until they basically implode and they're forced to sort of reevaluate their values, the country's values, and piece themselves back together again. And along the way, you have detours to, uh, you know, a teen tour of Israel, uh, a, a drug trip in Berlin. Uh, you know, uh, the the characters wind up in some all, in some crazy places, all in this effort to. Uh, reach something that's just out of their grasp and then sort of put themselves back together when that all sort of blows up in their faces, I guess. Interesting. Um, yeah, I, I'm fascinated by the cover of the book because um, I'm looking at it over your shoulder. Um, what, what, what inspired the cover? So I found this image, which is a photograph by Melissa Ann Pinney um, online. I don't remember how I found it. And I just knew immediately I needed it on the cover of this book. Uh, there are no characters in the book that fit the ages of the kids in the photo. There's no uh, bat mitzvah or high school dance or cotillion scene that would make sense for these two characters to be dancing as they are in the cover. Uh, but there was something about the photo that captured everything I want my writing to capture. So like when I look at this photo, I think uh, humor, pathos, uh, realism with a little bit of a weird edge to it, um, sadness, uh, these themes of like these kids are dressed, these kids are sort of trying to be older than they actually are. And in, in, in hope, it's very much a book about it. Kids in the family want to grow up really fast and the adults in the family want to sort of get back to the freedom of what it was like to be young. Um, and I just saw this photo and I thought, whatever I'm trying to communicate in a non-literal sense is just summarized by this photo. And what was crazy was uh, the photographer was like, go ahead, use it. Uh, but just so you know, I don't have model releases for these kids because this photo was taken in 1991 at a bat mitzvah in Chicago, and that's all I need. So we had to figure out like, who are these people and how are we ever going to find them? Because we have to get them to sign off. And because every American Jew is one degree of separation from each other, I put the word out to my friends and family. And literally within 48 hours, we had the names, professions, you know, emails of these two people who are now in their 40s and living in different places. Uh, and one of the things that was so funny was, so he, the boy in the photo, grew up to be like a big deal cannabis kink in, in Chicago, like a legal cannabis. He owns like a company that owns companies that own companies selling uh, weed. And as, I've, as the book has come out into the world, I started getting all these emails from people who are like, oh, I know him or... My dad used to play basketball with his dad or like, you know, it's been a really funny small world uh, kind of thing, realizing that uh, not only do people have emotional connections to the cover because it reminds them of adolescence or, or their high school dance or whatever, but because quite literally they, they, maybe they know the people in it or they went to synagogue with the people in it or what have you. So it's been a really uh, fun and weird experience hearing everyone's reaction from the cover. Yeah, and uh, that that's wild, and and it's it's interesting that that cover is kind of full of of like hope and excitement, and and of kind of growing up, and maybe innocence or innocence about to be lost. Right, right. 
you know, it sounds like there was some innocence lost, uh, certainly in, in your story. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's, I think, uh, another equally, uh, apt title, but maybe a less marketing marketable one would have been disillusionment. Um, I think I really get drawn to this theme of disillusionment, which is of course, sort of like the flip side of hope. Um, and the way those kids look in the, in the photo, it's, yeah, it's like, they're sort of at that exact moment when you lose your innocence or when your hopes are about to turn into disillusionment. Um, the book is set in 2013 at this moment, uh, when some of the optimism around Obama is starting to turn maybe into disillusionment. And a big part of the story is what happens when you've been promised that the world is a certain way and it doesn't turn out to be that way, or you've been told you're a certain way and your life isn't panning out in that direction. How do those hopes turn into disillusionment? And then where do you go from there? How do you regain hope or change your hope um, in order to sort of bounce back? So I, every character in the book really has a sort of hope to disillusionment to maybe hope again sort of trajectory. And that sort of felt uh, like it suited the title and the cover pretty well. Yeah. So I have I have three kids. They're triplets. They're, they, they just turned uh, 21 back in April. Oh, wow. One of them has, uh, I call it a big girl job. She's got a, an internship for Citibank in, in lower Manhattan this summer. <laughs> and like two days into it, she had to do a couple of days virtual. Mm -hmm. And um, it was before she could move into her little summer apartment. And she just like comes over to me and she's like, I'm in meetings all day long. And she's like, is, is this what being a grown up is like? And I said, yes, it is. And she's like, well, it kind of sucks. <laughs> and I'm like, welcome to the club, Maggie. <laughs> right, right. Like, you know, you have these things, you have this picture of what life is going to be like as an adult. And then when you, when you get to play the role or play the part, it's, um, you find out that it can be a little bit different than, than what you expected. Absolutely. And, and there are so many ways too, in which, uh, I think some, some of that, like in that example is, is such a relatable, you know, growing up experience. And I, you know, this is in, this is in the novel, but, uh, what the daughter in the novel goes to work, she's an English major and then she goes to work in, in corporate book publishing, which is something I did. And like her, I was like really shocked basically to realize that publishing is a business, right? Like you're coming out of your English classes and you're talking about lofty theory and, and artistry, and then you get to work and you're like surrounded by books and you're so excited. And then you start, you find yourself in a meeting where people are just referring to books as units. You know, how many units did we sell? And you're thinking, but they're books, they're, you know. And so I really sympathize or empathize with the, with that feeling of disillusionment when the world doesn't turn out to be that way. But I also think that there are a lot of things uh, generationally that uh, people my age and maybe your, your kids' age too um, were sort of, if not promised, then maybe sort of led to believe. I think there, are, there was a sense in which, you know, my parents are baby boomers and I think the system worked a lot better for them at that time and their parents than it is for people my age. And these ideas of like, well, you can retire at 65 and collect your pension. And, you know, just if you go to college, there should, you know, a job, a job will be lined up for you. You know, I always love the stories when my parents' friends will say, you know, they'll talk about their first job and will say, and I just marched right in there and said, you know, give me a job. And they said, all right, you know, and just knowing what the grind is like now in these, like, you know, the internships and the unpaid things and all this stuff. A lot of my writing with, in both books is about exploring 
what happens when some of those American dream type uh, uh, myths we tell ourselves, like college will lead you to a great stable job or, uh, you know, if you just work hard, you'll be a success. And then these things like COVID's a great example happen and all these people are out of work and suddenly have to think, you know, is it, are those comforting maxims really so true? And if not, how do we sort of, what are the new maxims, you know, what are the new, what are we going to be telling, what am I going to be telling my kids, you know, when they're growing up as a way to get them motivated into the world without necessarily misleading them into thinking, well, just get your degree and work hard and you'll be just fine, you know? Or you could just, um, you know, say the world needs ditch diggers too. You know, <laughs> that's another way you could go. Right, right, right. Well, the funny thing too is that uh, I think in the town that this, where this book is set, which is again my my childhood town, uh, not a lot of ditch diggers in the in the Boston suburbs, and as a result, you both have all this opportunity to make something of yourself. But it comes with this weird pressure where it's like, if you don't succeed, there's this sort of feeling of like, hey, we gave you we gave you the tools, so you know it's almost like the flip side of meritocracy. Like, uh, if the rules are fair then what's your excuse, you know? And so I think there's sort of unique uh, opportunities, but also let's say uh, pressures in, uh, in being told, you know, you can be anything when you grow up, uh, which is just very much the ethos in my team as a kid. So I, I don't mean this to be anything but a compliment, but has anyone ever compared you to Jonathan Tropper? Um, I, I actually, one, once or twice, yeah. And I'm not as familiar with his work uh, as I, I, I believe I read, this is where I leave you. Mm -hmm. And I, and I definitely see it. And it actually is one of those cases where, um, there are some writers who, if they weren't formative to me at like a young age, but then it turns out we have some areas in common. I'd have to like actively avoid because it feels like a little too weird and uncanny. And I almost find myself going like scrutinizing too much because I'm like, I see how you got there, but I might've done it this way or, you know, um, so I think because I didn't read him at that formative age, but then wound up in a place where people will say, hey, you should check him out. I almost, it almost makes me not want to more, but I, but I definitely heard that. And I'm certainly not, I take it well. You know? Okay, good. Very good. I have to ask who is, uh, who is Carol? I see over your shoulder. A book oh yeah. Excellent. So uh, my, Carol is my grandmother and she she's alive, but she was before, you know, she was a little older, a really brilliant uh, ceramicist. So this was an ad for one of her, or flyer for one of her gallery shows. And she is in some ways the inspiration for the grandmother in the novel, who's this kind of like outrageous character. And my grandma is, is certainly that, but she's also this incredible artist and has lived like, she's lived all over the world. And so Whenever I do these, you know, you want to put your own book there because you want to, you know, show it off or whatever. But in a way, I think my artistic lineage sort of derives from her. She was the, my, you know, my dad's a doctor. My mom is a teacher. Uh, but my grandma was sort of like the only model in my childhood as like an artist in the family. So even though it was ceramics, I found a way that we talked to each other about art in this way. You realize writing and, and ceramics can be really similar in terms of the process. Uh, so I like to show her off as well, you know. I'm curious, having a father who's a doctor and a mom who's a teacher, there, there's a lot of practicality in, in both of those professions. When when they heard that you wanted to make a go of becoming an author and make a living as a writer, what how did they take that? 
they took it very well, but with this kind of, you know, they were the kind of parents who were like, do whatever you want, be whatever you want, but A, you're going to have to work your ass off and B, uh, have a backup plan. Um, I did not follow the second uh, uh, admonition. I did not ever really, my backup plan was become an English professor, which is at this point, it's like, easier to make a living as a fiction writer incredibly because of, of the way academia is right now. So my backup plan wasn't really a backup plan, but I, but I did have this sense that because my dad had gone to medical school and I'd heard all these stories about, you know, you know, late hours at the hospital or you know, sleeping at the hospital or, you know, not coming home for days and falling asleep in the bathtub when you do get home because you're just so tired. I always thought I have to work as hard at what I want to do as he did at what he is doing, even if no one's forcing me to. And so it instilled a lot of discipline early on. Um, so they were pretty good about it in that regard. I actually think the bigger pressure, which is not imposed by them, but, but by me was about, yes, those are, are very practical careers. They're also very um, sort of do-gooder do careers. And I don't mean that obviously in a, in a negative way. Uh, I, there's, you could probably break down like X number of people would, would not have lived as long as they did were it not for my dad's work or X number of students would not have gone on to do such and such work for my mom. And I actually find that's the pressure that sort of haunts me the most is this feeling of, um, I love just being a writer and wanting to make art and also not wanting to fall into the trap where I, where I start telling myself that art is changing the world in a, or, or, you know, whenever writers talk about their work, almost like it's activism. I just back away because I, it's a very inefficient form of activism. Let's put it that way. Um, so that's the sort of pressure I wrestle with is how do I sort of earn my, earn my, you know, keep on this world doing something that while it does bring pleasure to others, I hope, uh, it's also very, very self-directed where my parents are doing very sort of service oriented jobs. Sure. No, but you know, don't, don't shortchange yourself because, you know, I think it was Bono who, who's quoted as saying, um, you know, art can change the world because art can change people, you know? So just, just by having that kind of impact on somebody, it, you know, maybe it's not on mass, but, right, uh, right, right. but it, it certainly can happen. Um, I always like to get to know my guests a little bit more through pop culture. So I'm curious, taking a trip back in time, uh, Andrew, when you were growing up, what were some of your favorite things to watch on TV? Um, I was a complete uh, Simpsons obsessive. Uh, there was a, I remember my friend had a birthday party and they brought in like a trivia guy or whatever. And one whole category of the trivia was the Simpsons. And literally everybody sat down and was like, just let, just let Andrew do it. Uh, I think, I think, you know, we mentioned it before. Conan O'Brien was, was an early writer yes. on the Simpsons, I believe. So there's another Conan connection for you. He wrote the monorail episode. The monorail episode. And didn't they want, I think they wanted George Takei in on that as a voice. Ooh, and okay. he wouldn't do it because of some reason. He was trying to get a monorail built. Oh, yeah. There was, or something. Yeah, right? yes. I heard this on Howard Stern, so take that with a grain of salt. Sure, sure. But yeah, no. famous episode. Incredible episode. And that sensibility really got to me. I mean, I also love, you know, Seinfeld, Kirby Enthusiasm. My parents fed us on a diet of Mel Brooks and Coen Brothers. Um, so Mel Brooks and my son works at a golf course this summer. 
And one of his first things he has to do every morning is count count the money from the uh, the driving range, and then he has to go make a deposit. And I call him Count the Money after <laughs> Mel Brooks in um, uh, History of the World Part One, and he's like, yeah. I, I don't get the reference. I'm like, Well, we're sitting down tonight. You're right, right. Going to be watching History of the World Part One because that is a seminal movie that every person needs to watch. Yeah, I think there's something about his stuff that is so simultaneously smart and silly. You know, like my dad, his favorite movie of his is Blazing Saddles. So we oh, of course, yeah. And there's something about watching, you know, a middle-aged man with degrees from Harvard and he's got this big, serious doctor job, bust a gut laughing at a bunch of cowboys sitting around farting, where you so just go, there's something here. Like, if this can get to him, you know what I mean? Yeah. And I think that's really informed me too, just realizing like, I want to write smart, interesting stuff, but I also don't want to lose sight of the, the common, goofy, embarrassing human, you know, aspect of all of us and his movies. He's clearly a genius who's communicating in the form of like low comedy. And that is such a perfect marriage. Um, yeah. So a lot of Jewish, a lot of Jewish comedy and uh, also just big film buff. So I remember my parents were screening the godfather when we were like nine and we were like okay these are like serious theme you know it, it was a big uh big kind of movie book family for sure every time i watch the godfather and i've seen it i've you know i've seen the movie a hundred times i've read the book a few times i always pick up something new you know it's i always pick up something new and the guy and i got to see it last summer at the tribeca film festival they did a screening of it um al pacino was being interviewed before De Niro was there introducing them and seeing that movie. It was the first time I ever saw that movie with, with, with a movie theater full of people. And there are laughs in that movie that you do not pick up on. Right. You know, when you're watching it, you know, just on TV at home with a couple of people. Um, right. It's, yeah. Uh, it's fascinating. It, it's it, to tie it to the comedy thing too. I mean, it really speaks to, I think so many great works of art, be they film literature, whatever, really have a sense of humor to them, even if they're not comedies per se. No one would say The Godfather is a comedy, but I think that lightness of touch or those periodic jokes, or even just a sense of irony or a perspective on the world that acknowledges the, the silliness of it at times is so essential. Um, I remember reading uh, uh, Madame Bovary or trying to read Madame Bovary as a kid and being like, this is this crusty old novel, I can't get into it. And then I read it some years later in a different translation. And it was so funny. And I would never have known how funny it was had this translator, in this case, Lydia Davis, like revealed that through her translation how much humor is actually there. And again, no one would call that a comedy either, but it's this way of, I could never get into something that was utterly devoid of comedy. I need, there always needs to be those little moments where you can see that the, the creator of the work has a, you know, has a sense of humor at the very least, even if it's not the primary tone of the film or the or the novel sure yeah my wife and i watched it recently too Rewatched it and we're just like is there a non-iconic scene in this movie? like every scene I know. Like, that's the that scene and that's the that scene and you just i'm like i'm waiting for a forgettable scene and like it's it's not happening you know it's it's a it's a great example of uh of filmmaking that is for sure um how about music what did you like listening to growing up um i went through uh, what I would describe as this kind of edible 
uh, thing where when I first started getting into like grown up music, um, it was all my dad's stuff. And my dad's interests were very much like Bob Dylan, Joni Mitchell, Bob Marley, uh, you know, Bruce Springsteen. My mom was a big Bruce Springsteen and The Doors fan, Lou Reed. Um, but lots of like, you know, 60s, 70s, early 80s stuff that was playing in the car. Um, and then as I became a teenager, I, you know, I felt this need to sort of like reject that and like find my own music. But instead of latching on to what was popular at the time, for whatever reason, I got really, really, really into the hip hop of the generation just before mine. So uh, Tribe Called Quest, De La Soul, stuff like that from the, from the 90s. Um, Wu-Tang Clan, like just massively obsessed. I was the like white suburban kid in his bedroom with a massive Biggie Smalls poster hanging above his bed and uh, didn't know that that was something I might want not be embarrassed about years later. But I, I, so at this point in my life, I like, I listen to pretty much everything I love. I've gotten really into African music recently. There's an African rec place called the African Record Center uh, near my apartment that's just this incredible treasure trove of like old African vinyl. Um, but growing up, yeah, it was like classic rock into 90s hip hop into, okay, now I can, now that I've sort of um, differentiated my identity here, I can sort of go back and, and, and listen to most things. But yeah, a lot of very, very Catholic in my tastes, in my music tastes. And if you could go back in time, um, I always, I call this the uh, dear younger me question, you know, to the younger Andrew growing up in, in Brookline, what would you, um, what would you whisper into his ear? If you could whisper anything into his ear, you know, words of advice or encouragement, what would you tell him? I would say, I would say, keep going. Um, and I, and I say that because there's so much. In this career, there's so much self-doubt and there's so many reasons why it couldn't or shouldn't work. Uh, but even beyond the career, I think just in my own life, I'm a very self-scrutinizing person. And I think if I had just, you know, all my, my mom and I joke about this, that all we want in life is for someone from the future to come in and say, it's going to work out, you know? And of course that can't happen. And that would probably take the, the fun out of it too. But if someone could just whisper in my ear as a kid, like, just keep going, like, stop worrying so much and like, keep going. Uh, I think if it would have gotten me to the same place I am, but it would have saved me a lot of needless uh, anxiety, which, which I sort of associate as the, the dominant uh, emotion of my, uh, of my youth and maybe presence. <laughs> so well, I'd love for someone to come up to me today and say, keep going. That would be, that would be great too. Well, we, we all need encouragement um, yeah. and, and specifically writers because um, we, we bathe in self-doubt that's right. Um, Andrew, where, if people are listening and they say, hey, you know, I'd like to connect with this guy on, uh, on social media or through a website, do you have any handles you want to share with us? Sure. So, yeah, for the sake of my own mental health, I'm not on social media, but you can find me at my website, uh, andrewridker.com, and there's a contact me, like, email form. And by and large, and when I can, I do, I do answer. I like corresponding with readers. My, my uh, not being online is more to protect my writing, the writing side of my brain uh, than anything else. So I'm here. I love to hear from people. Um, it'll just have to be through the, you know, the old fashioned mechanism of uh, an old email. So old email or smoke signals. Um, exactly. It's there. It's a uh, writer's choice. Well, 
Andrew, thank you so much for stopping by and corking your story and letting me uncork yours. Oh, my pleasure. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening to Uncorking a Story. If you'd like more information about today's guest or to find out more about Mike, go to uncorkingastory.com. If you enjoyed the show, please subscribe, rate, and review us at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Tune in every week to hear Mike Carlin uncork a new story.